Welcome everyone, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health and today we have quite the pedigreed uh, physician to join us and talk about his life's work. Uh, that is Dr. James Gordon. He's a Harvard educated psych psychologist, a, a physician MD, and he uses self-care and group support to help heal populations that are particularly afflicted with psychological trauma. And we're going to go into some of those specific strategies. It's really quite intriguing. Uh, he's founder and executive director of the nonprofit Center for Mind Body Medicine in Washington, DC. And he's a clinical professor at Georgetown uh, Medical School. And uh, President Bill Clinton actually appointed him chairman of the advisory council to the National Institutes of Health uh, Office of Alternative Medicine. So he's really, uh, as I said, has quite the pedigree and his major passion is in helping people resolve really severe psychological trauma, not only in our country, but internationally. He's going to discuss some of that. So welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Gordon. Thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. So you're, the reason we have you on is you've written a new book called The Transformation, I believe, that uh, that uh, essentially um, documents much of the work that you're doing and describes the process that you're engaging with and the incredible uh, relief you're getting from so many people. So do you want to discuss your journey on that and why you started, why you wrote the book? Sure, I'm very happy to do it. A uh, book, book, I didn't have a picture of it. I have a book here called The Transformation, Discovering Wholeness and Healing After Trauma. And the basic idea of the book and of the work I've been doing now for 50 years is really that all of us have the capacity to understand and help ourselves. And we have far greater capacity than we ordinarily understand. And that when trauma comes to us, and trauma is a Greek word that means injury, and trauma is going to come to all of us sooner or later in our lives, we can use techniques of self-care and we can reach out to other people and we can not only uh, bring ourselves back into balance and uh, enhance our resilience, but we can also use trauma as an opportunity to transform our lives. To, as we work through the challenges that trauma brings, we can find perhaps a greater wholeness and healing than we've ever encountered. And in the transformation, what I, what I do is lay out, create a comprehensive program so that anybody who's reading the book can use the book as a, as a guidebook and as a map for meeting the challenges that trauma brings, for working through them, and for coming out on the other side and uh, experiencing this transformation. And it's the same program, as you said, that we've been using at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine now for almost 30 years both here in the United States, and I was uh, mentioning earlier, working with veterans, uh, working with people in uh, cities and rural communities, uh, communities that have been affected by climate-related disasters and school shootings that we're also using around the world in countries that have been devastated by, by wars and by terrorism and poverty and ongoing violence. So it's a model that's been tested we published a great deal of research on it. It works. And best of all, anyone can learn to use it. So trauma is something that will affect almost each and every one of us in some way. Maybe not to the degree that you've worked with in some, some of your uh, clients in the past and patients, uh, especially internationally in war-devastated areas and, and those afflicted by terrorism of horrendous uh, atrocities. So why don't you describe how common trauma is and why most everyone watching this would benefit from some of these strategies? You know, I appreciate, I appreciate your saying that and, and asking that question. Um, trauma, there, there have been a, a recent government survey said that 60% of U.S. adults believed that they were significantly abused or neglected as children. And some of the studies on adverse childhood events, studies that were done on middle-class families, have shown how, uh, how frequent uh, abuse and neglect are, even in families that are well-to-do and that look perfectly fine on the surface. But if you, don't, if you happen to have the good fortune to grow up in a family where there is no abuse or neglect, 
where you're not impoverished and you're not discriminated against, you're still likely going to come up against traumatic events. Trauma is a Greek word that means injury. You're going to come up against uh, injurious, traumatic, distressing, challenging events in adult life, whether it's uh, separation or divorce, a child's illness, many of the kinds of chronic conditions that you and I have been helping people deal with for many years, they really are traumatic, not only the condition itself, but also often enough the treatment. And if we don't experience trauma in uh, our midlife, we certainly will if we live long enough to grow old. When we become frail, we deal with the losses of people we love and deal with our own inevitable death. And this is an, this understanding that trauma is a part of life is part of all the religious and spiritual traditions and all Aboriginal people all over the planet understand this. I think we've developed in the, sort of in the modern Western world, we, we've come up with this idea that everything should be okay all the time, that we, that if there, there's something really wrong, if some misfortune comes to us or if we face a major challenge. And so that makes it harder for us to deal with the challenges that inevitably come up. But yes, all of us are going to deal with trauma sooner or later. And the skills and the tools that I teach are ways of dealing with the trauma that comes to us and also ways of equipping ourselves to be more resilient when challenges inevitably do come. Yes, resiliency is the goal in many cases. So you talk about ACEs in your book. And that is an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and mentioned that about a quarter of the adult population that is well-educated and financially secure note that they have these. And in my clinical experience, <clears throat> it seems these are the most profound. I mean, every, I mean, you can get raped at the age of 30 or 35, and yes, that is an, an emotional trauma and challenge but may not be as severe as your father giving you a bad stare when you were four years old or the perception of abuse. So I'm wondering, and at least that's my experience, and, and really getting back to that childhood experience and, and, and resolving the emotional trauma that Jeff generated is, is really vital to resolving the person's uh, clinical problems. So I'm wondering, if you've been doing this for a long time, five decades, and I'm wondering what your experience has shown you with respect to how important those childhood experiences are. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Child, childhood trauma, especially when it comes from those people whom we depend on, parents or other caregivers, uh, is often much more severe because these are the people to whom we look for comfort and care. And when they betray that trust, when they break that bond with us, we're in a terrible bind because we have to keep on looking to them for care. We look to them for security. And at the same time, they may be betraying us on a daily basis. So it's not likely to be that one look that you mentioned. But if you feel that all the time, even if it seems rather subtle, if you feel that continuing disapproval, as many, unfortunately, many children do from their parents, and especially if the parents are taking out on their kids the uh, the, the unresolved issues in their own lives, their own frustrations, their own anger, their own hurt, then it's very, very hard. It goes very deep into the child, and the child has the sense, well, I, I'm not worthy, and maybe I should be treated badly, and maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm not important after all. And that stays with them through adult life. And one of the challenges and one of the issues that I address early on in the transformation is the need to become aware of these feelings that we carry around with us or that we may carry around with us. So sometimes, for example, people will, will be so mistrustful in their relationships as adults. And at a certain point, they may wonder, well, why am I so mistrustful? They can come up with lots of reasons why, but at a certain point, the, Many, many people have a sense that there's something going on, and maybe it's not the people I'm meeting right now, or the people I'm relating to right now. Maybe it has something to do with what happened back then. So the trauma of childhood, uh, first of all, needs to be realized. We need to understand that it actually happened. We need to come to accept it, and then we can begin to deal with it. And it's often, as you suggest, it's often a more complicated 
um, process and dealing with a, a very major traumatic event that comes to us in our adult life. Okay. Well, thank you for affirming my 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 uh, observation. So, uh, I think at this time it might be helpful for those uh, watching or listening to have you share some of the pretty dramatic examples and illustrations you provide in your book, as as a result, especially the international ones, as a result of your teaching, because. And, and, and describe how you took yourself and a team over there to help these. It's almost like a missionary mission that you went over and helped these people were really devastating process. And, and the, the results were quite dramatic. So I, it would be helpful if you could share that now. Sure. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for, for suggesting that. You know, I began the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1991. And we began to, from the beginning, was an educational organization. And we began to train clinicians here in the United States to use our method, whole variety of techniques of self-care, which we can discuss later, different forms of meditation, guided imagery, movement, self-expression and words and drawings, and group support. And it was working very well here in the U.S., working in uh, medical schools. We're training medical school faculty clinical practices and community-based organizations here in the U.S. And I began to wonder, can this approach that's working well here work in some of the most troubled places on the planet? And after a couple of brief trips to Africa, uh, it became uh, clear, it was clear as it could be at the time, it felt like it's important to go to Bosnia. This is just after the peace accords were signed in 1996, about a year after that. And 200,000 people had died in the war in Bosnia, and 50,000 women and men had been put in rape camps. And so a family physician, Susan Lord, and I went to Bosnia to see if this work could be useful there. And we discovered that people welcomed our work, the uh, heads of public health, the head of the Islamic University, the Monsignor of the Catholic Church, and it was great. And we realized that the trauma had set in so deeply that trauma disturbs our physiology and our psychology. And so what we saw is people in chronic fight or flight, anxious, agitated, um, drinking to subdue their symptoms, <clears throat> people who were withdrawn and not able to connect with each other because not only had the fight or flight response persisted, but they'd also shut down to protect themselves at the freeze response. So we spent some time and we worked in Bosnia over a couple of years, but as soon as the war in Kosovo started, we knew that we had to be there, that the time to start working with trauma, and this is a lesson for anyone who's watching or listening to us, the time is to start as soon as you realize the trauma is there. And in this case, we wanted to start as soon as the war began. So Susan and I went there during the war. And we began to work with women and children and older people who'd been burned and bombed out of their homes, and also with peacekeepers, uh, soldiers who were trying to keep the warring parties apart and kind of helping to monitor the situation. And we saw that the work was extremely well received and that it was being useful to people there. Ultimately, uh, after the NATO bombing, we went back. We had left Kosovo to work with refugees in Macedonia. We went back in. We trained 600 people in Kosovo, including more than 200 who worked in the community mental health system. And our model became central to all of mental health in Kosovo. And Kosovo is actually the first country in the world where mind-body medicine is a completely integrated part of the healthcare system. Nothing I could have ever predicted in advance. And we began to study our work and study the use of our work. And some of the people we trained were teachers. And so these teachers in a rural high school were teaching our method of self-care to high school students. And 80% of these high school students had had their homes destroyed and 20% had lost one or both parents. These are very severely traumatized kids. And the high school teachers led groups and they taught the kids these techniques of self-care, the same ones that I present in the transformation. And 85% of the kids who began those groups with post-traumatic stress disorder qualifying for that diagnosis 
no longer had it after 11 weeks, and those gains held at three months follow-up. And this was published in a major psychiatric journal, this, uh, this report. And this is very important for many reasons. One is that the method works. The second is that you don't need to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist to teach people these techniques. That's number two. And number three, this also suggests that somebody who's reading about these techniques, who's learning them from the transformation, can also get the same kind of benefits. Now, we've continued to do that work in many other places around the world. One of the most dramatic stories, and uh, one that keeps coming back to me, has to do with our work in Gaza. After we'd established our program in Kosovo, I was looking for where else we might work, where else we might be helpful. And simultaneously, I got letters from an Israeli and a Palestinian psychologist. And the letters were so, actually, it's emails, they were so similar, I wondered if, they, if they'd collaborated on writing them. But turns out they didn't know each other, but saying the same thing. And what they were saying is that because of the situation, the ongoing conflict and tension between Israelis and Palestinians, they were saying the kids in our schools are so upset, they're so agitated, they're so violent. And they said, we're very good uh, clinicians, we're good at working with individuals, we're even pretty good at working with groups, but we cannot deal with the situation. Would you come and help us? And we, because we've read about what you've done in Kosovo. So I went and eventually brought a team to both Israel and to Gaza. And we're the only organization working with psychological trauma at any scale on both sides of that still very big and painful divide. Now, what we do wherever we go is we train local people to use our method, whether it's school teachers, in uh, in Kosovo, or doctors, or nurses, or in the case of Gaza, many of the people we trained were, again, school teachers or school counselors. And after the 2014 war, where there were some 2,000 people killed in Gaza, including 500 children, our team fanned out across Gaza and began to work in every part of this territory. Um, and one of the groups that one of our, one of the people we trained who happened to be a school teacher, one of the groups that she led was with eight to 10 year old children who had all lost their father in that 2014 war. And one of the children in that group was a nine year old girl named uh, Azar Jandia. And in our groups, at the first of a series of groups, we ask everybody, whether it's groups for children or groups for adults, we ask everybody to draw three pictures. And viewers may want to experiment with these pictures on their own. They're very simple. You draw yourself, you draw yourself with your biggest problem, and you draw yourself with your problem solved. Now, usually, the second drawing helps people to focus on what the, the biggest problem is. So that's important because sometimes it's very hard to, when you're just thinking about it, if there's so many things that are distressing, but the drawing helps to focus. And the third drawing is usually very hopeful drawing because it, it provides, it, it taps into our imagination to imagine a solution to the problem. Well, Azar's second drawing, the biggest problem, she drew herself as a tiny little stick figure in the corner of the page with her mouth turned down in sadness. And occupying the page was a scene of carnage and destruction, that the, her home was falling down. Overhead, there were planes that were bombing her home. On the ground next to her destroyed home, soaked in red of blood, was her dead father. Next to him were two uncles who'd also been killed, and nearby was her aunt, who was also killed in the bombing in that war. So this was Azar's biggest problem. She was just this tiny little girl in the midst of death and destruction. This, it's very distressing to see the drawing, but the solution she came up was even more distressing. In the solution, she was lying next to her father in a coffin in the ground. 
And when I asked her what was going on, she said, I am with my father again. He is dead. Um, there is no reason for me to be alive. I want the Israelis to kill me. Five months after the war, and other kids in the group had similar kinds of pictures. She came into our group. She learned the techniques of self-awareness and self-care. She learned different kinds of meditation. She did the drawings. She used mental imagery. She uh, moved her body actively to free up the stress and the tension. She uh, did written dialogues with some of the symptoms she was having. She drew a genogram, a family tree, and looked to her family, imagined the sources of support from her family. In the final group, in the ninth group, she did some drawings again. And this time, when she drew who she wanted to be, which was equivalent to the solution to her problem, she drew herself with, in a white coat with a stethoscope around her neck and the earplug, the earpieces of the stethoscope in her ears and the resonator on the chest of a person lying on an examining table in front of her. And I said, what's going on here? She said, I am a heart doctor. Since the war in, since the war in 2014 here in Gaza, so many people have hurt their hearts. I am taking care of them. And there were five other figures standing next to the examining table. And I said, and, and who are these, Azar? And she said, oh, those are my other patients. They're waiting for me. There are many people who need my help. So this is an, a, sort of a very dramatic story of a little girl. And this is five months after the war. So really nothing had changed since the war. Five months after the war, she, the only solution to her problem to the destruction, to the loss, was to die, to be killed. And coming through this group, learning how to regulate her body, regulate the fight or flight response, with quiet meditation, how to break up fixed patterns of tension with movement, how to use imaginative techniques to um, come up with solutions to problems. She herself discovered a way to move forward with her life. It, it wasn't that she wasn't still sad. She told me how much she missed her father, but new life had come to her. And she was resolved to becoming a doctor. She, had, uh, she went home and she taught her whole family the techniques that she learned. Uh, this is now three years ago, four years ago. She's doing very well in school and she's well on her way to her goal of becoming a doctor. And this is what is possible, even for people who have been severely traumatized, not only to recover from the trauma and to build resilience, but to discover possibilities they had never even dreamed about before they were traumatized. Well, uh, you must have been reading my mind because that is precisely the story I was hoping you would share because it, in my perspective, it is the perfect illustration that really shows the power of your techniques and the title of your book, The Transformation, because that's precisely what happened to this little girl. And uh, really, I think, helps people understand the power of your work. Now, your work is certainly not the only way to address psychological trauma, but it, it is an interesting one. And I'm particularly intrigued with the fact that you don't need to be a healthcare professional. You don't have to study for years or decades to acquire this expertise. It's relatively easily learned. And there's literally just a few principles, I think less than a half a dozen. I mean, there's extended ones, but I mean, just really a few. So I, I think at this point, it, I mean, you met, you referenced some of them, but I think it would be helpful for our uh, viewers if you uh, go into more details as to what the process is. Sure, I'm very happy to do that. And, and of course, you're right. It's not, this, is, this is not the only approach, but to me, this approach is foundational. Mm -hmm. And it puts us in the balance, and it can be it can be more, enough and totally transformative for people. And also, you can use it with other approaches that you may find helpful for trauma. The basic idea is that when we're traumatized, when we experience injury to our body, mind, or spirit, there are two basic processes that are that are activated. One is the fight or flight response which is in all vertebrates, all animals with backbones, and it's a life-saving response 
uh, that was developed evolutionarily to help us deal with extremely threatening situations, to help all animals deal with predators. So what happens is our heart races fast, our blood pressure goes up, our big muscles get tense, the blood goes there, goes to our heart and lungs. We start putting out stress hormones so that we can fight or we can run away. And fight or flight is meant to be turned on quickly and turned off quickly. If you've ever seen a, a nature film of animals on the Serengeti Plain in Africa, you see an antelope grazing by a, a waterhole, a lion appears, the antelope goes into fight or flight, and in the case of the antelope, genetic programming assures the antelope you don't want to fight a lion. So the antelope runs away, and if the antelope escapes, three minutes later, you see it in the film, she's happily grazing. Fight or flight has come, done its job, and gone. With we humans, the problem is we go into fight or flight, and we stay there after a traumatic event. Sometimes it's because the trauma is ongoing. As we were talking about, that's what happens to kids who are in abusive or neglectful situations. Um, but sometimes we've experienced a traumatic event and we're stuck in that fight or flight. It's like our foot is on the accelerator and we can't take it off. And so we become anxious and agitated. We have trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating. We're impatient with other people, impatient with ourselves. Um, so that's one reaction that continues. And also, we're, we're stuck in that past, and we replay the images, the images of someone abusing us or someone assaulting us or a boss treating us badly or what happened to us when we were deployed in Iraq or Afghanistan, whatever it was. The other response that we have to trauma is called the freeze response. A fight or flight is part of the sympathetic nervous system, uh, which is part of one half of the autonomic nervous system. The other half of the autonomic nervous system is the parasympathetic nervous system. And in general, we're trying to mobilize the parasympathetic nervous system to balance out fight or flight. And I'll explain and teach a technique that does that in a moment. But sometimes, if the situation is so overwhelming and so inescapable, we go into what is called the freeze response, which is mediated and governed by the oldest part of the parasympathetic nervous system deep in the midbrain. And we just shut down or we collapse. And we put out large amounts of endorphins to protect us against the pain that's there. And... Um, we distance ourselves because the trauma is so overwhelming and inescapable and we can't do anything else except shut down our bodies and close off our minds. And this happens, for example, to children who are abused by their parents because they, the abuse is terrible and they can't get away from it. It happens to people who are assaulted by, uh, by people who are much more powerful than they or it happens when we're raped. Or it happens in a war zone when we can't get away and we can't fight and we're just overpowered by the situation. Now, those two responses, fight or fight and freeze, when they continue, they are the essence of post-traumatic stress. And one way to look at it is that post-traumatic stress keeps us chained to the past, to the traumatic events, which we keep on replaying in our body in fight or flight and freeze response. We keep on replaying in our minds, constantly thinking about what happened or blaming ourselves for what happened or having flashbacks while we're awake or dreaming about what happened. So the essence of work with psychological trauma is helping us come into the present moment because with trauma, we're chained to what happened in the past, and we're worried that it might happen again. But if we can relax and come into the present, then trauma starts to dissipate, and we start to come back into balance. So the very first technique that I teach in the transformation, that we teach in our workshops, in our training programs, when we're working here in the U.S. or overseas, 
is slow, deep, soft belly breathing. And we can do that for a minute or two. It's very, very simple. It involves breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth with our belly soft and relaxed. And I'm closing my eyes because that eliminates a lot of external stimulation. And as we do this, pay attention to the breath coming in through the nose and out through the mouth. We can say to ourselves, soft, as we breathe in, and belly, as we breathe out. And we can feel the softening in our belly. And as we continue this breathing, we can feel the relaxation little by little, in all the parts and all the muscles of our bodies. So this is technically a concentrative meditation. It is the antidote to the fight or flight response. It activates the vagus nerve, which slows heart rate, lowers blood pressure, helps us relax the big muscles, improves our digestion, quiets centers in the brain like the amygdala and the emotional brain that are responsible for fear and anger, and stimulates centers in the frontal part of our cerebral cortex that make us more self-aware, more thoughtful, more capable of decision-making, more able to be compassionate to other people and to ourselves. So this is a place to begin, and this becomes the foundation for learning all the other techniques that I teach in the transformation. Because if we're in this relaxed moment-to-moment awareness in this state, then it's much easier to use the techniques that mobilize our imagination. It's also easier to use the active physical techniques that can break up the fixed freezing that's in our body. We really need to work with our bodies as well as our minds and our imagination when we're dealing with psychological trauma. So we need to do active techniques to break up that freeze response. And so it goes. There are many, many techniques, and they build on this foundation of addressing the biological as well as the psychological consequences of trauma and developing a complete program that can be individualized for each person. Great. So so you've done the first one. I just had a quick question on that. I've interviewed Dr. Andrew Weil in the past, and he has a type of breathing called force that he coins four, seven, eight. Where you breathe in on four, hold seven, hold it for a count of seven, and then breathe out on a count of eight. And I'm wondering if you've ever explored that as in, into this. It seems like it should work pretty well. You know, I, I think that that works well. This, this to me. Um, there are many, many breathing techniques that can work. I like this one. Um, I I learned it 45 years ago from Stephen Levine, who was a wonderful teacher. I found it very easy and it's easy for people to relate to, um, kind of a a universal technique. I know some, some people like the technique that Andy uses and, and I appreciate it as well. Uh, and we use many, many different kinds of techniques. It's not that one is necessarily better than the other but this one is exquisitely simple and people people find it so easy to do there's a there's a, a video on our, there are a couple of videos on our website that may be instructive one is a 60 minute segment that features the little girl azar and features our work in israel and gaza that i was talking about and another is, is a video of the of the baddest little boys in gaza the most disruptive kids in their kindergarten class and they're doing the soft belly breathing and they're feeling their bellies go up and down and they have these beatific angelic expressions on their faces. So I, I like soft belly because it's very, very simple, very easy for anyone to do, but there are other techniques that can work. This is not exclusive. Sure. This is a, it is, our approach is comprehensive and it can include other techniques as well. Uh, earlier, you had mentioned the drawings, which is clearly an important part of your process. So maybe you can expand on that and then discuss some of the other strategies like the chaotic breathing and just exercising your body in a sort of a 
a, a really frantic dance movement to get get those that energy out. So I mean, it's some really uh, intriguing approaches that you have to really ultimately address the foundational trauma. Great, thank you. So the the, the drawings are a way of mobilizing the imagination, and I, and I like people to do drawings. And I suggest at the beginning of the transformation that they do these drawings. First of all, because when you draw, and there are three drawings, again, drawing yourself, yourself with your biggest problem, and yourself with your problems solved. And what it helps to do is to get us out of the, the sort of constant noise of our rational mind, uh, which is, you know, arguing with ourselves and berating ourselves for having done this or not having done this blaming other people, it brings us into our imagination, roughly speaking, shifts us from the noise of the left brain to a little bit of quiet in the right brain and starts mobilizing our imagination. So the first drawing is just to get you out there on the page. You know, what, do, what do you like? What, is it, what do you look like? Second drawing helps you identify a problem. And third drawing, where you look at the solution to the problem, where you put it out on the page, gives you a sense of hope that there is a solution. And as ours case, her solution wasn't terribly hopeful. 98% of the time, it's a very hopeful solution. But even if it's not, even if it's like Azar's, it tells you where you are at this moment. And then we do the drawings later on, and they, they provide a kind of objective look at where you've changed from the first set of drawings to using the second set of drawings at the end of a series of groups or at the end of the transformation, you can see the change. And it's, it's, uh, Azar's was very dramatic, but it's not uncommon for people to experience who have used this whole, um, this whole menu of techniques who've used this comprehensive approach to experience dramatic changes and for those changes to be visible in the drawings. Drawings are also really good to do when you're running into a difficult problem. Again, you, do the, you can do the same set. You draw yourself, you draw, the, you draw the problem, and then you draw the solution. And what comes from our imagination is often much richer, much more hopeful than what comes from our rational yes-but mind. So that's drawings. Very, very helpful. Um, to, and we use them with people with, of all ages. Other technique that we usually begin with is, is the shaking and dancing. There are three basic kinds of meditation, three categories of meditation. There are thousands of different types of meditation, but they can be divided into three categories. One is concentrative meditation, soft belly breathing, focusing on the breath, the word soft and belly, and on the feeling in our belly. That's a concentrative meditation. Every religion, every spiritual tradition in the world has concentrated meditations. Repetitive prayers can also be understood as concentrated meditations, whether it's Our Father, Shema Yisrael, Illallahu Illallah, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Second kind of meditation is mindfulness meditation, becoming aware of thoughts, feelings, and sensations as they arise. This is a meditation that we associate with the, with Buddha, with the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who became the Buddha. The Sanskrit word for awareness is vipassana. It's a very important kind of meditation. Third kind are expressive meditations, which use the body. These are the oldest ones on the planet. All our ancestors did them. Indigenous people all over the world continue to do them. These are very important for use with trauma, and unfortunately, they're not used nearly as much as they should be. In fact, all three kinds of meditation are very useful, and we use and teach all three kinds, and I teach all three kinds in the transformation. Expressive meditation, the first one we use, first one I teach, is shaking and dancing. And it's really very simple. You stand up, put your feet shoulder width, and you start shaking from, I'm sitting down right now. You can, if you can't stand, you can do it sitting. But if you're standing, you start shaking from your feet up through your knees and hips and shoulders and chest. You let your head go and you do that for five, six, seven minutes. And what it does 
is it begins to break up the fixed patterns that have come into our bodies when we've been traumatized. And we're, we're shut down. The, the tightness in our shoulders, the headaches that we have, the, um, the tightness in our, in our legs and our, and our butt and the, the, the cold hands we have and the, breaks up also the, those ideas that are constantly repeating themselves in our mind, the ideas that, oh, we're bad, I must have done something wrong. And it opens us to what we have suppressed and repressed. So often during the shaking, emotions will come up. And that's fine. Sometimes it's sadness. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's fear. Sometimes it's laughter. So we do that for five or six minutes. And then stop. And then just stand and relax and be aware, be mindful of the breath and the body. Just relaxing and enjoying that state. And then I suggest that you put on music for the third part, music that's energizing for you, music that, that raises your spirits and you let your body move to the music in whatever way it wants. And what this does is, it, as I said, it breaks up fixed patterns that come from both fight or flight and freezing. It allows emotions to come up and it gives us a little, a little lesson and a little time for mindfulness to become aware of what's coming up in our body as we've done the shaking. And then it gives us a chance to express ourselves, to feel some freedom. And uh, we've used this technique with hundreds of thousands of people around the world. We've trained close to 7,000 people now to use our method. And people at first, they think this is pretty weird. And I say, yes, it is pretty weird. Uh, and if you haven't done it before, it's not weird to indigenous people who've been doing this for thousands of years, but it is weird in our modern world. But just give it a try. This is all about experimenting. And it's all about saying to everyone, uh, everyone who reads the transformation, everyone who comes to one of our workshops, no matter where they are in the world, you do it. You see what happens. And when people do this, what they say is, oh, I feel more relaxed. I feel more energized. I was able to cry. I haven't been able to cry for a year. I've been holding all my emotions in. And it feels so good to let go of everything I've been holding in. And I feel more alert, more energized, more calmer. So these two or three really are basic. The soft belly breathing, doing the drawings, and doing the shaking and dancing. And once we're in a state of increased equilibrium, more in a state of balancing out the fight or flight response and freeing ourselves from the freeze response, we can use all the other techniques I teach. Guided imagery, written dialogues, uh, biofeedback and autogenic training, that is phrases that mobilize the parasympathetic nervous system and help us rest and digest. Many, many other walking meditation, mindful eating, all, all these other techniques can also be used. Okay, thank you for expanding on that. And uh, the other type of breathing you mentioned in the book is chaotic breathing, uh, which is obviously quite different than the soft belly breathing. And I'm wondering how that's integrated into the, your program. Sure, Cha chaotic breathing is, um, I, can, I can show, let me, let me see if I have to get out of the chair a little, let me tilt the, if I can, tilt this up a little. I'm sort of, uh, chaotic breathing is like this, breathing fast in and out through the nose. And uh, you need to do it through your nose, because if you do it through your mouth, you will hyperventilate. And if you do it through in and out through your nose, you won't hyperventilate. And what will happen, and again, we do that for five or six or seven minutes. And what it does is it raises the energy. People are often feeling very depleted uh, after they've been traumatized or after they've been going through a stressful situation or dealing with a chronic illness. And this raises the energy. And again, it helps us bring out emotions. Many people find it extraordinarily helpful. There are a couple cautionary words about this. Anyone can do shaking and dancing, and of course, anyone can do soft belly or the drawings. This chaotic breathing, um, you should, I'm using all the accessory muscles, so I, I kind of look like a bird, pretending crazed chicken getting ready to take off. Um, 
if you've had a recent heart attack, if you have very high blood pressure, if you've had a major injury to your uh, spine, uh, to your upper, upper, upper back or neck, or if you have shoulders that easily dislocate, or if you're pregnant, don't use all these muscles to do the breathing. Just, just breathe like that fast in and out. So, and what happens is, you know, you never, the thing about teaching so many different techniques is I never know which technique people are going to like best. And I was working with a little, uh, when I go around to visit our programs in different parts of the world, I, um, I usually ask people, especially kids, you, you've done all, you've done these techniques, you've been in a group, you've practiced these techniques, what do you like best? And I was in Haiti uh, a couple of years after the earthquake, and I was talking with a little boy who'd been in a group led by a priest who was leading a tent camp, Father Freddy was the priest. And I said to this little boy, I said, which technique do you like best? And he looked at me and he said, I like. And I said, really? You like that one? I said, how come? And he looked at me and he said, well, during the earthquake, I saw my mother die. She was buried under our house. And that image of my mother under our house dying and nobody could help her has stayed with me ever since, and I, I haven't been able to have a good night's sleep. I have nightmares, have such trouble getting to sleep. And then after I did, for the first time, I was able to go to sleep and not have nightmares. So now I do this every evening, and it helps me to sleep. Now, I would never have predicted that. But what this did is it freed him from being so imprisoned by this terrible experience of seeing his mother die and being so caught up in all the pain and all agitation and all the terror. So that as he was able to use the chaotic breathing, it made it possible for him to sleep and it cleared his mind enough so that he was no longer plagued by these terrible nightmares. So all the techniques really really uh, useful to people. One I want to mention, one part that I think is really important, and I think that the people who are watching you know, your program might be particularly interested in, is the use of food as a vital element in relieving the damage that trauma does to our mind as well as our body. And part of that is learning to eat mindfully, learning to eat slowly, to choose food more wisely, uh, to eat less, just eat what we need, not what looks good on on the plate. But also, there are many um, dietary changes that we can make that can make a major difference in in how we feel and how quickly and well we recover from trauma. And I, I know we don't have a lot of time, but if we eat the kind of diet that I know that you've been teaching your uh, you know, people who, who look to you for information and guidance. If we eat a basic healthy diet and we're eliminating food additives and uh, preservatives, and that in itself is going to help our gut to heal. Because when we're psychologically traumatized, our GI tract from the mouth to, <laughs> to the anus suffers just as much as our brain. And every aspect of digestion is significantly disrupted. So we need to restore functioning. Part of that is by techniques like soft belly, which quiet the fight or flight response and allow our digestion to operate more efficiently. But also what happens when we're traumatized is that the small intestine is, is very seriously damaged. So the villi, the projections of the small intestine through which we absorb nutrients, don't do their job so well. And the cells that line our small intestine are start to separate. And we develop leaky gut, which we may not have had before, and proteins that never bothered us before. For example, the gluten protein that's in wheat and barley and other grains, and proteins in milk start leaking across our gut into our bloodstream and causing inflammation in all parts of our body, or can cause inflammation in all parts of our body, including our brain, causing anxiety and depression. And also the microbiome is disrupted profoundly by psychological trauma, so that the 
roughly speaking, the good bacteria start declining in numbers and the bad bacteria increase. And what happens is the messages, the microbiome give to the vagus nerve, which is the major part of the parasympathetic nervous system, are not as healing as they were before the trauma. So the vagus nerve, which helps our brain to repair itself, can no longer do its job. So we need to attend to our diet to eliminate foods. And for a while, I suggest people eliminate gluten-containing foods and stay away from milk products until their gut is restored. We need to supplement with probiotics. And I would also add we need a at the very least, a multivitamin, multimineral supplement. There was a very interesting study done in New Zealand after the earthquake there, a very good randomized controlled trial showing that people took a high-dose multivitamin, multimineral had far fewer symptoms of psychological trauma than those who did not. So we have everything to gain and nothing to lose by taking that kind of supplement. So all aspects of our life, very much including diet and supplementation, and be mobilized to help us move through trauma. Yes, and uh, although eating a, not, a diet or selecting foods that are not highly processed or ultra processed is important, many times the overlooked component is the time window that you're eating. Most people are eating as soon as they get up and when they go to bed. Uh, so time-restricted eating where you're only eating in four to six hours a day is a really powerful intervention that will improve your health. But I wanna go back to the motivation that many people or students have when they're applying to medical school, which is obviously they want to help people. Otherwise, why would they go into this profession? Especially nowadays, it's really challenged with so many variables that make it a, a, a dilemma to be a practicing physician, at least in the United States. Their initial motivations are to help people. And I'm wondering if you could comment on your experience as a physician, it seems like not many doctors out there are able to really reap the rewards of why they went into medicine in the first place, which is to help people. And you are just seeing such enormous transformations in the people that you that are engaging in your techniques and, and treated, and not treated, but trained thousands of facilitators to magnify and leverage that. So I'm wondering if you could just comment on, you know, as you're in the, the definitely the later stages of your career on, you know, the satisfaction and the gratitude you feel for having been able to really facilitate this process and, and really achieve the, the primary motivation for most people who are seeking to go into a career of medicine. Well, thank you. It, you know, it, it's, it, it's a joy for me uh, to do this work and, I think what I, what I what I've always done, and I was you know I was I was a privileged kid. My parents medical school didn't cost much, and um, my parents were able to pay for it, so I didn't wind up with a lot of debt. But I've always taken very seriously a message from my father, who was a surgeon, not the easiest man on the planet by any means, <laughs> oh, but sir, he said something. <laughs> but he said something to me. He said, "Jimmy, when I was a little kid, if you're a doctor, you can do anything," and I took that very seriously, and I figured I oh, I have this wonderful, you know, this Harvard Medical School education, or you know, I can I have skills, I can use them wherever I go. Um, let me do what I really want to do, and and always I've I've followed. That's been my credo. I've done what I wanted to do, which was to help people, and I've wanted to help people in the way that made sense to me. Now along the way. There have been a lot of people who've taken issue with some of the things that I've done um, and criticized me. I was a researcher for years at the National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, I really, you know, I began to look at this whole field that we're now deeply engaged in of alternative, complementary medicine, holistic, integrative medicine. And at first, some of the people there, some of my supervisors thought, what are you doing that for? <laughs> but I've always tried to look at what works best for other people and what works best for me. And what, what I think is really important is, and what I say to the now thousands of doctors who've come through our training programs, and the method that I teach in the transformations now being used probably in 20 U.S. medical schools. I, I, I wrote a paper summarizing the 
research and the effects on students in 15 U.S. medical schools is that anybody who's a physician, I know there are difficulties, I know there are obstacles of bureaucratic and economic of all kinds, but if you start tuning into what really makes sense to you and you're able to deal with the fears that come up, fears that are unfortunately um, inculcated often enough in medical education itself, but if you can start to, you know, kind of quiet yourself down, look more clearly and imaginatively at what's possible, you can find a way to fulfill yourself as well. And so, you know, we've trained so many physicians who have come to us in exactly the kind of state that you're describing. They're people who are often very accomplished and they've done very well, but they feel like they're out of touch with why they went into medicine. And the same is true of people in the mental health professions. And it's true of teachers we work with as well. And so what this method does is it helps them discover, um, not only deal with trauma and stress, but also discover what they're meant to do and who they're meant to be. That's what comes out of it, just as surely as Azar found her path to becoming ultimately a doctor. The doctors who we work with, the physicians we work with, the mental health professionals, the teachers, the administrators, the bureaucrats we work with, they start waking up to either other ways to do the job that they're doing, or they decide to change the job, to do something different, which will be more fulfilling to them. And I think that's, so for me, it is, as you suggested, it's enormously gratifying to be a, a kind of catalyst or a midwife to that process. And that process is open to anyone who's interested in doing it. And I think, um, you know, my, my goal with the transformation is to make this work available to anyone who not only wants to deal with the trauma that may have come to them, but also to discover their own, their own path, their, their own healing path, their own path to becoming who they're meant to be. Okay. Well, thank you for writing the book, The Transformation, which is a great resource. And clearly the first resource someone should pick up if they're interested in what you just discussed because uh, it's a good prep. But it, it, there's the, the techniques that you teach in your coursework are really laid out quite well in there. And you can, I'm sure many people can get the benefit just from reading your book. But if someone wanted to take it to the next level and either become a facilitator and train in your work or visit one of your facilitators to have personal one-on-one -on -one guidance, can you uh, describe the process and how that occurs? Sure. We have a website, which is cmbm.org, charliemary, bettymary.org. And on the website, there's all kinds of information about all the projects we're doing after school shootings, after climate-related disasters in war zones, and in communities around the United States. There are also listings for our faculty. We have about 160 faculty altogether, 130 of whom focus on these mind-body approaches that are in the transformation. The others primarily focus on nutrition. And we also have groups that are happening all over the country. And we have now online groups. So if you go on our website, you can find the online groups. And in all the work that we do in the online groups and also in the trainings that we have here in the United States that are open to you know, people who want to learn how to use this method for themselves and others, we do our best to make them available to everybody. So in our groups, it's a sliding uh, monetary scale. We charge a regular, you know, ordinary fee if you have the funds to pay. And if you don't, we charge very low fees. Similarly, about 40% of the people who come to our trainings here in the United States come on scholarship. We want our work is to help all of all those who want to serve and help others to use what we have to offer and so the website and we are a community of healers and a healing community so th this talk and i'm so grateful to you for giving me this opportunity is also an invitation to join our community look on our website see what we're doing we have a lot of offerings that are available there join one of our groups either in person or online or if you're interested in being trained to use this approach, we have trainings. Our next training is actually all filled up, the training in October, but we'll be having a whole other series of trainings that will begin 
next summer in Minneapolis. So look on our website uh, and come come join with us. Be part of our community. Our community is here to support you in your life and in your work. All right. Well, thank you for your commitment and dedication to providing some really useful tactics and strategies on resolving the profound damage that can occur from all these psychological traumas. It's a great thank you. contribution to humanity. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support and your interest in what we're doing, Joe. Okay.